Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We hope to have an exciting conversation with our guest today. Um, Today, we'll have uh, Dr. Jessica Taylor. Um, who is a best-selling author and CEO of Victim Focus, which is an international training, research, and consulting organization focused on um, tackling prejudice and stereotyping of adults and children who have been subject to crime, violence, abuse, and trauma. So thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to History, Culture, Trauma. Um, please tell us about yourself and um, you know what you want the audience to know about you and then we can jump into how you got into this work. Okay, cool. So uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really interested and really excited to do this. Um, So yeah, I'm a psychologist. um, So all the formal stuff is, you know, I have a PhD in psychology. I specialize in psychology of victim blaming and self-blame. And that led into a specialism Mm -hmm. around trauma and abuse. You know, I've been working in crime. So I've been working in forensic settings, specifically um domestic sexual violence child abuse trafficking um those types of crimes for about 14 years this year which is just running away with us um already but um i mean in terms of who i am really i um i grew up in a really sort of poor area didn't have anything you know um we lived in like social housing. Um, I have a lot of siblings. I'm the oldest of seven. Um, so I think that's always interesting context. Um, I, um, I didn't finish high school properly, um, or anything like that. We did, you know, it was a really, really rough area to grow up in. It was really dangerous, uh, place to grow up. Um, I had, um, I had my first baby when I was a child so I was um 17 when I had my first baby and then I was 19 when I had the second one um not in good circumstances uh, at all um and um you know wasn't really something I ever wanted or ever planned um but you know they're like (laughs) life is just weird you know it throws you these things so um yeah I had the kids um and they're amazing and you know I've like I think I've done a pretty good job um but it was them I think that really like motivated me to go and get an education and to actually do something with my brain uh and to make a difference um because I remember especially after I'd had the second uh one and I was extremely unwell I had him very very premature and I remember just sitting there and thinking oh my god I'm responsible for two lives Yeah, you, you know that. Like, I know the feeling. Like, <laughs> yeah, what What have you done? You know, sort of like how How are you going to keep them alive and yeah. give them a good life? And you know, so um, I had to really think about that. So I decided to volunteer my time, go to uni, and do all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I live a very, very different life these days to what I grew up in, and um, I've spent you know the last fourteen years working predominantly with women and girls who have been subjected to lots of different forms of trauma and abuse. And I bring a lot of, I think, my personal experience into it. But really, I would say I've learned most from those women and girls. You know, you've only, your personal experience is your personal experience, isn't it? But it's only like, it's only one experience. So I think you learn more from other people than you do your own personal stuff. Yes, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for giving us um, some background. Tell us a little more about Victim Focus. So Victim Focus, um, I set it up when I was 26 um, and I'd already been working in sort of child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation, anti-human trafficking. I'd been, I uh, was working in sexual violence and domestic abuse before that um, and in criminal justice prior to that. I set it up actually because I just felt like I kept seeing the same things go wrong, the same gaps, there was the same flaws in the system, the same people get failed the same people get discriminated against that, you know, and it felt like I've got one of those personalities that's like, I can't stand by and watch something go wrong over and over again without attempting to do something about it. 
But as you probably know, when you work in big systems, you can't, you're not always in the right position to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just decided, and, I, and like, I'm still friends with my colleagues that I was working with back then. I remember going to her, my CEO at the time and saying, I'm going to resign, not for any bad reason here, but because I need to go and do my own thing and I need to try mm -hmm. and figure out some of this stuff. Um, so Victim Focus works all over the world now. Uh, it's we're based in the UK, but we uh, take on work from anywhere now um, and do all sorts of things. The main focus for us is helping professionals mm. to understand how to work with people who are traumatized and have been abused and have been through awful, distressing, horrific things in their lives without harming them anymore. You know, not, no oppressive practice. Don't pathologize them. Don't harm them in any way. Um, and that sounds simple, but our systems are set up to be harmful. So it's they not are. simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It makes me think about, you know, when I first started in trauma-informed work, you know, the four R's and the one that I thought was the most interesting was, you know, do not re-traumatize. And the fact that it needs to be there, you know, that it needs to be stated is not by mistake. It is very true that our systems are harmful. And in most cases, they were set up to be harmful. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so it, it is definitely needed. It needs to be stated. Um, I I think, you know, we have very similar backgrounds, Um I came into the work um, around trauma because I, I'm I am a victim of child sexual abuse myself, but then also you know it definitely set me in a, in a different course in life. I was just out in the world wandering around, and then I found a job that was criminal justice related. I was um, working with uh, juvenile offenders, twelve to eighteen, who had um, committed either three felonies, rape, or murder, and yeah. that set me in the course of, you know, what is it about these children's lives that we are at this point? And I was working in institutions and came upon a lot of information that was very deficit focused. And it really brought me into the space of historical trauma because most of those children were, were African-American. And yeah. then also the adverse childhood experiences study. I, I came across that. Uh, I'm a very, you know, a big fan of of your work and you know just like when we connected I, I thought we had so much in common and yeah. one of the things that I thought we had the most in common was this worldview around anti-pathology which is interesting because we are both psychologists like I'm a psychology professor my background is psychology and you are a psychologist and we're we're both anti-pathology so tell me a bit more about what does it mean to be anti-pathology and how does it connect with the trauma-informed movement so I think I got to my understanding of being anti-pathology through feeling like a trauma-informed approach wasn't quite enough. It mm. was, I think that for me being anti-pathology and this, and some people, you know, obviously probably won't go as far as me. I, I accept that. But for me being anti-pathology is the complete rejection of positioning human beings as disordered and mentally ill. Mm. You know, we have, so many different traumas and abuses and distresses in our society that are ignored and overlooked and and also deliberately hidden and people are gaslit about them you know and then we convince people that instead what they're feeling is a mental illness what they're feeling is a disorder that they should have to go and get help for mm -hmm. and so what i was worried about i think is that the trauma informed movement has I think to some extent been sucked back into the medical model of mental health again. And mm. so what we see now is this overlap where you'll get some professionals that say, oh yeah, you know, I'm trauma informed, but I also believe that all these girls have personality disorder and they need to take their medication every day. Otherwise they'll be ill for the rest of their lives. And it's sort of like, in what way is that trauma informed? That's yeah. the same as it was before, you know? And if we're going to say that, if we're going to say that the only unique factor of a trauma-informed movement is that it is informed of trauma, psychiatry to some level already does that, and so does psychology. So it hasn't actually, dis you know, I don't think it's differentiated itself properly as a movement. Right. So for, for me, for antipathology, it's about 
How do we move this to a position that's actually against pathologizing humans? It's against telling them that they are ill and telling them that they need medication for the rest of their lives in order to be okay and to be to live a relatively stable life. How do we get people to realize that there's nothing wrong with them and that their trauma responses are normal and natural and should be expected? I think that I think yeah. that is why people find so much of what I do contentious is because I'm not interested particularly in compromising around this. I don't I don't really want to have conversations that go back and forth about, well, you know, you can be trauma informed and still encourage people to take their pills every day. And it's like, well, why would I do that if I don't think they're ill? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it it is very interesting, um, the dynamic around um, especially around medication um, and and whether or not it's needed or not. Um, but at the root of this conversation is that if, you know, one of the draws for me into this trauma-informed movement was through working with those children. And again, the majority of them were African-American and I came and from a very white supremacist racist lens and at this time in my life, yeah. um, just because I live in America. So I, I was like, oh, this is a parenting issue. So I went into my next phase of, of studies, studying African-American parenting. And this is where I found about the concept of historical trauma. And then I came into the trauma-informed movement. So I started with this lens of, um, you know, the Black community has all of this deficit research um, here that's saying, you know, this is all of the things that are wrong in the Black community. Yep lacking totally in the context of living in a racist society, the collective trauma of slavery, the ch collective trauma of the Jim Crow era, the collective yep. trauma of domestic terrorism against Black people. And so to me, it was very clear that this is a reflection of the poor environments that they've been subject to. Yep. Uh, and, and, and not only that, but it would be, this is a normal reaction. So one thing we learn about trauma very quickly is that the traumatized brain, it, this is a normal reaction to these environments. And so if it is a normal reaction, then it can't be disordered. And, and yeah. this is where we get into this space where we are not able to reconcile our understanding of the biomedical approach. Yeah. Um, also the biomedical approach is deeply rooted in the experimentation of black people, brown people, mm -hmm. yep. um, and the quote unquote mentally ill of the, of the time and, and, and prisoners. And so um, yep. it's a very interesting topic. And I think that you're right. It is the kind of the next phase of this trauma informed work that we begin to have a clear pushback against the biomedical um, approach that we have now to, to, well, it's not mental health. It's just health. Yeah, it's the thing is we've been here before in history. We've been here. We had an anti-psychiatry movement in the 60s that actually gathered quite a bit of momentum. It was, you know, activists around that time that really put pressure on the APA around the DSM and around their categorization of mental disorders that argued that there was no scientific rigor, that they weren't real illnesses, that they couldn't prove any of them existed and that they were subjective observations of human beings that just looked at people and sort of went, well, you're behaving in this way and therefore you are mad and therefore you're going to get locked up. And, you know, um, as you quite rightly say, if you were black, you're likely to be locked up for the rest of your life. Not only that, but you were likely to be held in an institution where you were tortured as opposed to ever helped, you know. And mm -hmm. so, did we, you know, at that time in the 60s, we we already had this. We, we sort of, we've been here once, but I think that what, happened over you know around that time especially sort of moving into the 70s and the 80s was that it was successfully destroyed it was successfully mm -hmm. positioned as this sort of like quack rubbish yeah. Yeah. utter you know sort of like that people shouldn't be allowed to say this and that it was almost like the bolstering of this medical narrative that like these people have a serious illness and you're not taking it seriously by you know and it was sort of like pushing people to feel guilty that they didn't believe these disorders existed um and you know the pharmaceutical companies got smarter and smarter at positioning them as illnesses with symptoms and treatment programs and so on. So they could market their drugs and stuff. They got better and better at that as the decades went on. Um, but we have been here before, but I think that we're going to have to go back there. 
we're going to have to. We're going to have to go back to basics and start asking people, do you believe that human beings who have been traumatized and abused and oppressed and discriminated against and all these things that are happening to them in society and with capitalism and classism and ableism and homophobia and misogyny and racism and everything else that's happening, do you really believe all those humans are just mentally ill? Yeah. Could it maybe be what's being done to them by our societies and governments? Our systems. Yes. And, you know, it is, you know, this very clear, you know, chicken or the egg type of conversation. But at the end of the day, our systems have been very clearly deemed (laughs) to be corrupt. Um, And they have always, uh, again, been in this harmful space. And so the manifestation of that is that we have people who are traumatized by them and act out in traumatized ways. Uh, And instead of medicating people, we need to be dismantling those systems. Um, When I think about um, this movement, there are so many ways that this stands out for me, one of which is more modern. Well, there's two. There's one very old one and there's one very modern one. But one of the modern ones that I think is really in the news now is the impact of social media on young girls. Uh, I was reading up on how there's even, you know, there's obviously an uptick in in anxiety and depression, but then there's also upticks in in ticks in these uh, different obsessive and compulsive behaviors that are clearly tied to social media usage um, that we are not, again, lacking in political will to change the environment, but are instead treating the girls, attempting to treat the girls. And then on the other end, it makes me think about one of the first understanding that I, I got where I became a critic of the field that I was in. And that was my understanding of drapetomania. So yeah. I remember, um, you know, I can't even remember how long ago this was. It's probably 2009, 2010. I was reading up before histo- historical trauma work. And one of the first um, kind of, you know, early diagnosis, this is when psychiatry was still under the medical um, um, realm in America where they were diagnosing runaway slaves who were increasingly running away over and over again as having a mental illness or an irrational um, desire to be free. And I thought- Yeah, that's right. Delusional anti-whiteness, they call. Yes. I was was amazed. I was like in a, a delusional- what a what a weird diagnosis uh, that was so disconnected from the human experience. And I thought, well, this is an example of, you know, a, a real area that highlights that, you know, normal, again, adaptive normal human behavior being categorized as um, as as deviant um, and requiring treatment. And so. What are some other examples that you find in this kind of in this space where we have very clear evidence that, you know, pathology is not the way when it comes to addressing trauma within our society? Oh, gosh, there's so much. I mean, I I think the one that brought me to this, if if we just talk about one, it would be the one that brought me to these conclusions. The one that brought me to where I am now is I was working in, you know, a sexual abuse support service and domestic abuse support service. And, you know, it got to the point where every single referral that was coming through, we were being told they've got borderline personality disorder. They've got borderline personality disorder. It's borderline personality disorder again. And it was like, that's not possible statistically in one little area. That isn't possible unless they're all going through the same service that listens to these women and teenage girls talk about the time they were sexually abused Mm. and then concludes they have borderline personality disorder. And I remember I was running the service at the time. I had about 30 uh, staff and volunteers and they kept coming to me for supervision and saying, oh, you know, I've got another woman who's got borderline personality disorder, you know, and she's been raped. And I was sort of, I got, I was only quite young then. I must've been about 23. So I'm 33 now. And I remember just thinking, I don't know if I believe that they've all got borderline personality disorder, but I didn't know any of this stuff yet. So I knew that I was suspicious, but I didn't know why. So I decided one night to go through all of our cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, they were actually still in filing cabinets. So I, I pulled all the files out and I was sat and I was looking at the patterns thinking, 
how is it possible all of these women and girls who've disclosed rape or abuse to the police in the last, like, let's say, six months are all now being told they have borderline personality disorder? And that was what really started making me uncomfortable. And then I started reading about it and trying to find out more and more about it. Now, in the position that I'm in now, and I and I understand so much more about it and I've worked in it for a longer time, I now know that you are so much more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder if you disclose any form of abuse as a woman or girl. You are seven times more likely to be diagnosed if you are female, but then you are about 20 times more likely to be diagnosed if you disclose abuse or violence. So for me, that was when I really started looking at the history element of it, which was where did this come from? What is this from? And it goes back to hysteria, which was this belief that, you know, women and girls are inherently mentally ill because they they have what used to be called wandering womb syndrome, you know, this sort of belief that the uterus disconnects, floats around the body, attacks your brain, attacks your heart, attacks your lungs, makes women crazy. And that's what makes them misbehave. That's what makes them angry and sad and things like that. You know, that belief around hysteria carried on for over a hundred years and then it became histrionic personality disorder which you saw you know amber heard was maliciously diagnosed with by the other side by depth's um you know side which was utterly ridiculous um but we see you know just women and girls in our general population Mm -hmm. that have gone they've gone to seek help because they were abused or raped by somebody else only to be told you yeah. are mentally ill. You have a personality disorder. Yeah, this is um, so common and so pervasive in our in 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 the field of psychology. It it's it's very interesting. And some you know, obviously, our fathers of psychology are are white men. And mm-hmm. um, I remember when I was doing still doing volunteer work in kind of a coalition space. And I wanted to tackle the topic of toxic masculinity in my trauma-informed um, community education. And one of my um, supporters pulled out um, because they were very upset about the topic. And I was like, I wish he would have come so we would have talked about you know, men's mental health. And so, but uh, this is a, a, a perfect example of how, you know, when we look at all of the information about um, mental health outcomes here in America, there's a disparity you know, based on gender. And um, even despite the fact that the vast majority of our violent crime is committed by men, um, there is this disparity there. And I'm like, well, it it makes no sense to have these statistics and believe that men are less likely to suffer from mental health disorders, right? And so where's the disconnect there? And so obviously, if um, we're thinking about who decides what a disorder is, um, who's doing the research, um, and then living within a patriarchal society, and then you deem from this research that, hey, women are more likely to have a mental health disorder, and men are less impacted by this issue. Well, sure, that's what you're going to get out of your research and <laughs> out of the society that you've built. That, of course, that's what you're going to get from your research. And of course, you're going to other the, you know, the 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 group that you believe is different from you, and it manifests in gender, it definitely manifests when it comes to race um, over mm-hmm. and over again. I, I've taught at institutions where I have to say Black people are more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder, again, while they're living in a racist system, while this yeah. research is being conducted by white people at yeah. white institutions. Yeah. And so our, the bias is so pervasive in the field, and this is obviously very directional. Um I'm going to, let's take a break in in this really interesting discussion. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about um, what it means that, you know, the next, you know, we're going further beyond trauma-informed is anti-pathology. And then we can look into, you know, what are some solutions to kind of changing this narrative that we have? What does it mean for us to move away from the biomedical um, kind of approach in our work and thinking through, again, this difference between mental health versus physical health and and things of that nature. So we're going to take a break and we'll come back and jump back into this important topic. Follow Voice 
Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This podcast is supported by St. David's Foundation, a community-focused and equity-driven organization supporting health and well-being in Central Texas. To learn more about St. David's Foundation, visit www.stdavidsfoundation.org. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture & Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests, or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back with uh, CEO of Victim Focus and best-selling author, Dr. Jessica Taylor. Um, we've had um, a very um, intriguing conversation about the next level of trauma-informed work, which um, Dr. Taylor believes is anti-pathology. And so I know, you know, as I was kind of reflecting on the first half of our discussion, uh, it really made me think about um, really kind of what I'm focused on now in in my writing is um, scientific colonialism and scientific racism and how, um, like I was saying before, kind of our our fathers of psychology, again, white men um, and how this has really impacted the field, the belief that um, that that race is a real thing. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, um, but also, uh, and the belief, and you know, especially in um, colonialism, the belief in white supremacy, and how this has pretty much um, perverted our social sciences to include psychology. Um, so, you know, let's jump back into, you know, how how is you know this is the next phase of the trauma informed movement, and then let's talk about some potential solutions to changing the way that we view psychology you know, you know, not just in America, but worldwide, how we, how we view the field of mental health. What are your thoughts on kind of scientific colonialism and scientific racism used as a, as a tool? I think we've, I I honestly, it's, gosh, so I do a lot of traveling at the moment around the world and there's just so many points where you go and spend time with uh, indigenous leaders, communities, thinkers, writers, and you just realize that colonialism has destroyed 
any alternative understanding of the human condition, human consciousness, the human mind, the human experience, it just destroyed anything else we had. And it did it in such a toxic and dangerous way to the point where, you know, any other approach from any other community or belief system or culture was ridiculed. It was mocked. It, you know, it still is, you know, yeah. all the time and to the point where, you know, if you want to go and explore an alternative way of understanding humanity or consciousness mm -hmm. or anything, you are even as a professional, you know, as a psychologist, that's seen as ridiculous, that's seen as unprofessional. Mm -hmm. um, I hate that. I hate, like, it, it just feels, that is for me the evidence that psychiatry, psychology, mental health is still white supremacist, it's still colonialist, it's still obsessed with itself, it's still positioning that, you know, medical, white, oppressive view as the the peak, the, the you know, of, of all our knowledge, of our understanding of humanity. Um, and it just makes me, it just honestly it just makes me just embarrassed, frankly, like the amount of knowledge that we've just destroyed yeah, through colonialism, yes. Um, it, it's interesting because I do see now in the trauma-informed movement this push for um, embracing indigenous practices as yeah. a way of healing. Again. Um, and and I'm obviously not opposed to that. I think that's a great idea. And 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 also there's research that shows that it's it's beneficial. We have some of this already with. Um, for, and, and this is not just um, in the field of psychology, but also medicine. So we have this, you know, bringing in midwives and doulas now as we are trying to address disparities in, in maternal health and um, mm -hmm. definitely mindfulness and yoga. And so these, you know, we're, we are kind of beginning to embrace um, indigenous practices as a means of healing. But I am ready for this wholehearted in, embrace of, um, you know, indigenous practices while acknowledging the reason why we aren't connected to our indigenous yeah. practices anymore. <laughs> like, you, yeah. you know, they kind of leave out the context. It's always left out. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really important to state it loudly that the reason why these uh, indigenous practices work and their healing is because we are tying ourselves back to pr traditional practices that always worked, yep. um, that these practices were not, um, you know, engaged you know, with by savages, but that yeah. they were <laughs> meaningful and healing then. And the stripping of this is the result is is the reason why we are where we are today. Um and Absolutely. yeah, we really want to, you know, take the space and time to acknowledge scientific racism and scientific co colonialism and the damage that's done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also one of the things I think a lot about, even just probably more than I should, is is the link <laughs> Is the link between all of this psychiatry, psychology, mental health, colonialism, and religion? Because actually, you know, the church played a massive part in this and always has done. There is a reason why, you know, as part of that, as part of invasions, as part of colonialism, there was a reason why at the same time we started destroying these cultures and communities, we converted everybody to Catholicism or to Christianity. That yeah. was deliberate, you know, and it's the same reason that it was in the same time period that we started almost making rules about who's allowed to have visions and who isn't, who's allowed to hear voices and who isn't, who's allowed yes. to be able to meditate and who isn't. We created rules and boundaries for humans, human experiences that now, you know, according to the church, according to, I don't know, um, the Vatican, only certain people can speak to and have religious experiences and other people that are doing it are psychotic. You know, exactly. that, it, yeah. that level of it needs talking about as well. And, you know, like you don't find that much teaching on this topic as a psychologist, as a mental health practitioner. If you're working in trauma, if you're working in abuse, there isn't. You're right. The context just it, it's uncomfortable to totally so like raise yeah. that bit and just talk about like, oh, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant that we can use yoga? Like, and they don't really talk about how yeah. we destroyed everything. And now we're just bringing it back for our own convenience. Yes, bringing it back for our own convenience and only for certain groups. And yep. it's really tied, you know, this stripping of indigenous practices, traditional practices, um, you know, when that translates into research, it's tied to poor mental health, right? And so as we have stripped 
um, communities, groups of people, races, ethnicities of their traditional practices, we see, you know, again, this poor mental health that um, we want to document and say these groups are experiencing um, higher rates of crime and all these other issues. And you're right, we do not tie it to um, missionization, which is, you know, yeah one of the arms of colonialism. Um, and in uh, overall this, um, and this is where we tie in how there's the belief that certain groups are, you know, immoral uh, because they're of their practices. And, and it has really, you know, really damaged our, our collective well-being. Um, yeah. and, and it is definitely tied to the field of psychology because people, you know, often forget like, you know, Psychology is the study of the soul. It is about, you know, just, you know, just in the word meaning itself, it is about the study of the human soul and it is all tied together. And we need to be able to um, understand when we have kind of compartmentalized and defined these things from this white supremacist male view um, that we have traumatized everyone to include those who are doing the labeling. Yeah. Um, and what does it mean to us to change that narrative, to get back to that? So let's talk about what the solutions are. What are what are the solutions? How do we um, get out of this biomedical focus? How do we move to anti-pathologism without, while also being able to meet people where they are? I think it is a systemic issue and not an individual treatment issue yeah. but what does that look like solutions wise yeah i agree i think um that's a really important way of starting this question off because as you know some people they got they feel validated by that medical model you know telling them that they have a mental disorder for some people even though one day that could be used to harm them in that moment that validated their experiences mm-hmm. yeah. and it made them feel like everything that was happening to them made sense on some level so you you definitely do need to be careful like whenever we're talking about this just because there are going to be people that aren't ready to hear this but in my view one of the first and most powerful things we can do and what I have been doing for several years is just introducing people to that message that you know maybe there's nothing wrong with you maybe if you look around you and you consider everything that was ever done to you by other people and all the things you've ever been exposed to what would be the correct way to respond to this that wouldn't get you a label of some sort of mental disorder? Are you supposed to just be fine? Are you supposed to just be happy all the time? Like, what what are you supposed to behave like when you are traumatised by something? So like, I think just getting the message out as much as we can at a, a, a large level as we can. Um, but in terms of, I think, service redesign, government policy delivery, the UN and the World Health Organization very recently put out a new report stating, you know, their aims for the complete overhaul of psychology, psychiatry, mental health, which included things like recognizing that labeling people with psychiatric disorders was a form of harm, that they were more likely to be discriminated against, more likely to be abused, more likely, um, you know, to be harmed by people. We uh, they also call for um, you know, the end of things like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. They call for the end of things like forced chemical restraints, so being injected with powerful tranquilizers, you know, not being able to uh, consent to your own treatment and, you know, being heavily sedated and so on and so forth. So there's lots I think we can do in a pra- in a practical way. There's lots of things we could abolish. We could do that. I mean, if we created it, why can't we break it back down? We've got the power to create a system this harmful. We've got a power to either create an alternative or to right the wrongs. Like that's that is within us, all of us. Um, I think that one of the things that we can all do that's very simple. Uh, anybody listening to this is stop talking about yourself as if you are mentally ill don't talk about yourself as if you know like oh my anxiety is playing up you are more emotionally literate than that are you scared are you nervous are you worried are you frightened you know sort of saying like oh my depression's really bad at the moment 
owning these terms, these psychiatric terms means that you're not in connection with how you're actually feeling. You know, people say things like, oh, um, I've got a bit of OCD. Do you not hear how indoctrinated you are? Like all of your behaviours and your emotions, all that you have left is psychiatric labels for yourself. And I think that trying to pull people away from that and say, say, say how you actually feel, because you're not a set of labels. Yeah. And being able to identify the feeling will help you to identify the source. Especially right now, COVID really, you know, drove higher rates of anxiety, depression, and people um, in my work, um, you know, facilitating conversations around trauma, I had more of an open ear um, in 2020. People were very much into it, right? And, And the reason why is because they were feeling it. Yeah. Uh, and so they were had the higher levels of empathy. They had the higher levels of understanding. And um, and this is due to the fact that it is driven by the environment. You are anxious yeah. because we're in a pandemic. And yeah, that's not abnormal. You should be. Yes. <laughs> you should be anxious during a, a viral pandemic. Viruses are very small. You can't see them. You should be like, yeah. oh, I'm concerned about my welfare. And that's okay. I'm worried about it. And that's normal. Um, you should be feeling um, depressive symptoms um, during a pandemic because you're isolated. You know, these are normal human reactions to adverse ad- environments. And, and so I would also kind of want to plug a solution as being those positive um, experiences and environments happening. And that is, you know, a solution. How do we make those things happen? People have more positive experience, more connection um, as a natural buffer against um, the normal feelings of <laughs> depression and anxiety dealing with um, a collective trauma. And so, yeah, I think, you know, just being able to say the feeling as opposed to, you know, I'm scared as opposed to I'm feeling anxiety, yeah. you know? Yeah. And what are you scared of? Like, and this okay. is a legitimate fear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like, even then, when you were saying, um, you know, the pandemic drove anxiety and depression, that, you know, even if we take that as a really pathologizing sort of way of describing that, if people wouldn't, you know, the media wouldn't report on it if we said uh, people in the pandemic are very scared and very sad. Because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the bit, these psychiatric terms like, oh, depression is going up. Mm-hmm. Anxiety disorder is going up. What you're telling me, what I'm hearing from you is that human beings are terrified and they are isolated and sad um, and they're locked in their homes and their families are dying and they can't go and see them because you've not let them into the hospitals. You know, people are terrified that they're going to die. They're terrified the kids are going to die, terrified their parents are going to die. They don't know when this isolation will end. The government keeps moving the goalposts. No, you know, nobody knows what's really happening. The media has a big death counter on the corner of the TV every day on the news with with a number of the number of dead people going up every 15 minutes. What did you think was going to happen to this population? You know? Yes, it's so for my when I teach um my psych students about this week, I call it pop psychology, that you we have people who are not in the field using this terminology, and that is a reflection of how um psychology and the media are hand in hand. Oh, and yeah in this reflects in, in the way that we, again, label people because that discussion specifically was a, about children with um, uh, dealing with autism and ADHD diagnosis. And so that now these labels are being lobbed at people as, as weapons or in, in, in how pop psychology is not good for the field. And my students, they struggle with that. And of course, they're younger. So when they come into the classroom, they're using these you know terms against each other and against yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is uh, very pervasive. And I think um, that you're just exactly right, that it is uh, definitely a need to just tap into the feeling that you're having. And then that way you can tap into the source. What is the source of that feeling? And again, it is always a legitimate source. <laughs> there Absolutely. is always a legitimate source. There's so much going on in our society Absolutely. that um, there's a legitimate source for these concerns. And this is a part of being human. And, yes. you know, 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, is. I think what a bit of advice I would give around, like you know, how we could um, move towards solutions, would also be is is to start seeing stop talking about symptoms you know it, they're not illnesses they're, they're not a set of symptoms they're a set of either a response to trauma or a coping mechanism for whatever it is that's happened the, every single thing you can possibly think of whether it's palpitations or hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there or having a panic attack all of those things are either a trauma response or a coping mechanism. They are one or the other, or they're sometimes they're both and they're linked, right? That when you start to almost see yourself through that lens instead of through this battery of symptoms of like, oh, this, 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 and this equals I must have this disorder. One of the things that you can start to do when you recognize, right, I have these key trauma responses that seem to come up over and over again. I also have these health issues that seem to come up over and over again. I also have developed these coping mechanisms over the last few years is work backwards because you didn't used to feel like this. Where did it start and when and who started it and why? What purpose do they serve? So you just said everything has this like legitimate root, this legitimate cause. And I think you're absolutely right. Everything has a purpose. Humans don't develop trauma responses and coping mechanisms just magically out of nowhere. There's mm -hmm. not some, you know, wild chemical imbalance in the brain that one day they wake up and they just suddenly start behaving differently. Humans develop a change in their behavior and their thinking and their feeling because something is causing a change and they have to respond to that change. Um, and I think that when you start seeing yourself like that, instead of seeing yourself as ill, I th I think that can really help like, as well. Definitely. And this kind of goes back to, you know, these different sections of the movement, the trauma-informed movement, where we have some people that are saying in response to information about trauma and education around um, trauma-informed responses that they are, you know, one group is trauma is, you know, it can't, everything can't be trauma, right? They think trauma is being overused. Um, and I am on the other end where I believe very clearly that trauma is under, yes, <laughs> underreported, underacknowledged. Yeah. And, and, and so I think it's funny that there are groups that think it's, you know, everything can't be trauma. Well, actually, um, we are in the space where we are not acknowledging the extent of trauma in our society, we're really instead highly leaning on this uh, biomedical view, yep. but also on this, you know, the space where even people are saying, oh, well, everything can't be a disorder. Well, it, it, we need to find a place where we are acknowledging the trauma in, within our society. And that mm -hmm. will be a good place to start um, so that we can even differentiate between what would be considered abnormal. We don't even have this compass because trauma is so pervasive in our society and we are blind to it at this at this point in our in our field. Yeah. I really love the way you've just described. I think that we are. I think trauma is it's part of unfortunately it's you know we are in pro-violence, pro-abuse, pro-trauma society and we're being driven by a pro uh, conflict media, pro-conflict social media. And so we're keeping people in a state of fear. That's the, you know, the point of all of this. You know, you're easier to control in a state of fear. You're easier to market to when you're scared because people can feed you solutions. You know, you, you are distressed and you're kept distressed. You're supposed to be distressed because when you get to a point where you're not distressed and you are not being harmed by these systems, you don't require anything from those systems. And then you're not a consumer anymore. You can't be marketed to, you can't be controlled as easily. But, you know, we have got to help people on this journey of understanding. It doesn't make, it doesn't make for comfortable listening or co like comfortable reading to the point, mm. I think, that People would rather actually argue that this is like conspiracy. You know, it's like, it's ridiculous. You know, why is, you know, not everything can be trauma. This is, it's getting watered down. And to that, I would say, okay, then fine. If you want to create a line of what is and what isn't traumatic and what isn't, isn't trauma, then let's say that some things are traumas. And then there's also lots of distressing experiences that distress the body and the mind. So if that's why, the way you want to play it, fine. And even still, that's going to have an impact on people people and it's a cumulative impact over the period of your life 
You know, if you think like what you were saying about sort of trauma is underreported, you know, we look at things like, you know, statistically, you're likely to be bullied. Statistically, you're likely to be abused in childhood. Statistically, your parents are likely to divorce, unfortunately. Statistically, you are likely to lose somebody even during childhood, you know, a grandparent or somebody around you. So you ha- you learn about death and fear and bullying and abuse and all these things that happen to you just in childhood. Then you go through puberty and you go through social change and your role changes. That's traumatic. Then you get introduced to drugs and alcohol and violence and all the other things that go on around you. Then you become an adult and you're thrown into capitalism. You have to work 8, 10, 12 hours a day just so you can have one day off a week or two days off a week. You can't afford to live. So you work every single day in order to what? eat food like it's it's so hard life is really difficult of course humans are going to be distressed yeah (laughs) it's yeah and it is made to be that way and then then we are also then shamed by being in distress and offered medications and told and given a label um and then that leads to even further distress and discrimination um And it is interesting, especially when kind of what you're saying, that it's something that we don't have to exactly do. Um, We are all bought into this system. We are all collectively agreeing to be a part of this system. Um, And even when it doesn't benefit us in the least, it only benefits a very few. Um, And and it is a, a part of this greater, you know, the the outcome of pathology being labeled as abnormal and different for normal adaptive human behavior is, you know, it becomes a cycle. Um, Is there anything that you want to leave our audience with, with these last few minutes, something that you want them to take away? Hmm. I think it would be to really, if you found this conversation challenging, but interesting, go away, have a think about it and really start giving yourself some space and think about how many experiences you've had in your life that has, that have never been validated that you've never really had any support for that you've just pushed through and eventually you've started to suffer and people have then suggested you go to a doctor and that you're not coping and that you need help and that you 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 know you're you're obviously struggling with your mental health that is what we're talking about here that's what pathologization is that's all you really need to know is it's it's the complete dismissal of everything you've ever been through everything anyone has ever done to you in preference of convincing you it's in your mind it's in your brain it's you that needs help it's you that's the problem it's gaslighting and lots of people are talking about gaslighting online so maybe we need to think about pathologization as a form of gaslighting and i think that is the perfect way to end this segment thank you so much for joining us dr taylor um, and thank you so much to our audience for joining us Um, we will see you again next week Um, thank you for joining us on history culture trauma thank you Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.